Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Hello and welcome to another edition of GodPod. And uh, here we are in our little bunker. Very nice bunker it is. It's a little room in St. Melitus College. And here we have um, uh, the, the three um, ancient, trusty members of this crew. We have Michael. Well, ancient, anyway. Hello. <laughs> ancient <trusty> Michael. <laughs> Ancient, We're done for. <laughs> ancient Michael, trusty Jane. <laughs> we are done for. That's and, true. And Bishop Graham. Yes. This is a new right. thing since the last Godpod. It is a new thing. That, that you've had hands laid upon you like a rugby scrum. I have. It is true. And it wasn't very much like a rugby scrum, to be honest. Oh, well, yeah, I, they weren't I was too far away. Too yeah. <laughs> well, it is quite heavy, actually. When you get sort of sort of 30 pairs of hands laid on you, you sort of feel you're pressed into the ground. It's, that's a strange experience, but there you go. And, yep. and, and um, t- tell us about this, Graham. Um, I mean, I, I'm not in any way... Uh, this is not a critical question, but but why did it happen? <laughs> <laughs> no idea. <laughs> no, not quite true. Well, um, just for, for listeners out there who may not know about us, um, I'm Graham Tomlin, and um, I, I became Bishop of Kensington here in the Diocese of London just about a week ago from the time we're recording this. So it's kind of a new experience, and um, it's something which um, I've known about for uh, several months and um, finally happened in a wonderful occasion in Canterbury Cathedral where the sun shone, well not inside the cathedral but it <laughs> shone outside. It was a um, very special day surrounded by friends and family including of course Mike and Jane. So the two obvious questions and the first is um, is it going to stop you doing God pods in the future? Certainly not. That's a that relief is the right answer. to the nation <laughs> and the world. So reassure fact. the world. Yes. God pods will continue. That's very good. Exactly and and right. secondly, <clears throat> why, why, why do we need bishops? <laughs> what do they add? What are, what are they? That's a very good question. And it's one that, um, but in one sense, I, I think I'll, I'll discover a bit more about that as the job as the role kind of continues. Um, at the same time, though, I suppose, I suppose that, you know, the, the core of the idea of bishop and the word comes from the Greek word episcope, or which um, uh, really means oversight. It means um, kind of seeing across the church, as it were. And it's, it's always struck me, I suppose, that the key part of the, well, there's a number of parts, of parts to the role. One is, if you like, a, the sense that I think within churches that have bishops, the sense that the church is not just a collection of individual churches. It's not that actually we have lots of little local, individual local churches which don't have any particular connection with each other, but actually they are all somehow part of the one church, which is the body of Christ. And uh, I guess you have to sort of represent that in some way. And it seems to me that bishops are kind of meant to do that. They're meant to be um, people who, if you like, are called to represent the whole church and the connection of all the local churches to each other. Um, 
And I suppose, you know, alongside that idea of oversight is that element of a of accountability, because I think in churches that have bishops like the Church of England or Anglican churches generally, um, obviously many others as well, Catholic churches, some Lutheran churches and so on, um, we're kind of saying that each each individual church is not totally autonomous. Um, yes, local churches have their own life, their own sort of um, vision and direction and so on, but they don't exist on their own. Um and, and clergy don't exist on their own either. They are, in a sense, held together uh, and held accountable. Um, and again, bishops kind of represent that sense of connection and that sense of accountability. So I do think episcop- episcopacy or bishops are about the, the holding each other accountable uh, within the church to, to, to ensure that individual local churches don't sort of drift off and become something quite um, separate, distinct um and uh and and you know lose their identity as christian churches um and i suppose the other side of that is that bishops also you you have to be a bishop of a particular location you're not just a bishop at large you're a bishop you're the bishop of kensington so the the, the bit that you the other thing that you do is you connect um you remind the, the universal church that it only exists in yeah. real people and real places. So there's no such thing as the church in general. There are yep. only individual gatherings of yeah, the body exactly. of Christ yes. who, as you say, so you, you do both, don't you? You connect um, the, the, the local to the universal, but also the universal to the local. Yeah, that's right. And it kind of roots the church in geography, doesn't it? Yeah. Because you know, it's um, all those who were ordained, consecrated bishops with me were bishops of particular places. And uh, you can't just be as you say, bishop, full stop, you'd be bishop of something or somewhere. And um, uh, and even bishops that don't have a kind of a, a, a sort of a territory they, they, they oversee are still given a name, the bishop of a place, um, which is, you know, as in some way saying that the church is geographical. It actually is down to earth in that it, sense. It's real, yes. Yeah. And there's also... <clears throat> I mean, I'm thinking of the, the Council of Jerusalem here in, in Acts 15, where uh, something new was taking place. Gentile Christians were being baptized, but ba- you know, brought into the into the church, and there was a sense that you can't just do that as a little group. That has to be owned in some way and recognized by by the whole church. And so they got together and discussed it and said, yes, this was a an authentic move of the spirit within the church, and and that's happened throughout. Church history, isn't it? That, that, that kind of, there's a gr- group getting together, the church getting together, representatives and the bishops meet in Nicaea or Constantinople or Ephesus or wherever it may be, um, as a way of making sure that everything is owned by everyone. All the obviously not unimportant matters, but, but yeah, and I guess part part of that is the sense of bishops. I guess are given the role of if you like, guarding the faith, guarding the faith that has been handed down from one generation to another, which isn't conservation in the sense of just keeping it Preserving intact. Preserving it an aspect. Exactly, you know, saying exactly the same words as everyone said back in the 19th century or the 16th century or the 4th century or whatever. But, but it is precisely in that thing, when the gospel meets new challenges and new questions, how do we address those in a way that is continuous with the past, that is still properly Christian? And so there's a there's a kind of theological role it seems to me for bishops in that they are meant to, you know in, in churches that have them um, they have the role of 
of, of, of making sure the Christian faith is kept intact and, and it's the same Christian faith down the years. And I suppose in the early church, bishops were one of a number of different developments that that were there to guard it because I guess the, the, the danger in history, of course, is the sort of Chinese whispers thing that, you know, as one generation passes on the gospel to another, it becomes subtly different. And then before you know where you are, you're miles away from where you started. There needs to be some some body within the church that, that is responsible for guarding that. Um, Rather like in oral communities, the, it's the, kind of, the elders are there to make sure that the way the stories of the tribe are told is yeah. faithful to the way they were told in, in the past. And there's a group that kind of checks that from one generation to another. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So alongside, you know, creeds were one way in which that happened. It was a kind of codification of the church's faith so that it could be handed on down intact. And bishops were kind of more, slightly more, you know, creeds obviously verbal forms, bishops. They're pretty that. verbal too, I experience. <laughs> Yeah, very verbal, as you can see. Uh, you know, they, 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 in a sort of more dynamic way, try to kind of make sure the gospel is preserved and interpreted right in new circumstances and situations. And you look very good in purple, if I might say so. Yes, I'm sorry that the listeners can't see this, but oh, you're um, very kind. it's a fine sight. Yeah. You're very kind. We did try to get a sort of little picture of the God Pod 3, didn't we, in um, in Canterbury. But um, but it broke the camera. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't quite find each other in the crowd, could we really? <laughs> there you go. So anyway, it was... Um, so yeah, so um, um, yeah, new, new, new development. So there you go. Very good. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much indeed. And that means that Godpod will now have a new kind of authority to it, won't it? Because um, uh, we will have the teaching office of the church. Well, a third of it will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we, let's not make too big claims. <laughs> I'm not sure what I think about that, really. There you go. I'm not sure what I think about it. No, no, it's right. Anyway, so ask me again in a few yeah. years' time and see, what, see, what, see how it goes. Anyway, we've got a couple of, um, uh, as always, we have lots of really interesting questions emailed into us by listeners. And um, uh, we've got a couple we want, we want to have a go at this time around. And the first one is um, from uh, someone called Paul, Paul Moffitt from St. John's, Newfoundland in Canada. Oh, well, I, I know St. John's Newfoundland very well. It's where Newfoundland, they make the is that how you pronounce it? New, not Newfoundland, uh, it's well, Newfoundland. When I was living there, I spent a year and a half in, in uh, Newfoundland, did you? and that's how they pronounce it, yes. What do you mean they make the fog? Sorry, this is not a... a in the harbour at St. John's, you can just see fog yeah. coming off the, really? off the water. It's wonderful. Okay. Um, yeah, and if, I, if I was in the, the north in St. Anthony, but um, St. John's was the kind of throbbing metropolis to which I occasionally ventured. Well, yeah, well from the throbbing metropolis, which is St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada. Uh, Paul asks this question. He says, uh, I've been reading through the Bible with my children as part of their bedtime. We just finished Exodus and are starting Genesis. Uh, I do have reasons for that order, he says. Um, and we've just finished Genesis 3, the story of the fall, bedtime stories from Genesis. And uh, then he said, as we finished it, my seven-year-old asked me, why did God put the tree in the garden if they weren't supposed to touch it? Very good question for a seven-year-old. Yeah. And so... Um, uh, that was the uh, that's the the question. So it's a deceptively simple question, but um, often deceptively simple questions are quite profound and reveal profound depths. And we try to find them ourselves here on Godpod. So, um, um, what are our thoughts on this one? Why did God put the tree in the garden if we weren't supposed to touch it? Isn't He just putting temptation in our way? Absolutely. <laughs> I think the first thing to notice is that God never actually said they shouldn't touch it. He said, don't eat from it. It's the serpent that says, 
did God say um, you must not touch it? Uh, and and the serpent seems to be making God out to be a little bit more strict than he actually is at that point. It's not actually something God said. But there is the question of why they weren't meant to eat from it. If you know, had nice fruit and they, the other trees had nice fruit, they're allowed to eat from those. Why not? Yep. So they were kind of allowed to admire it and look at it and stroke it, touch it, <laughs> stroke it, or whatever. <laughs> hug, hug the tree, <laughs> but not to eat it. Yeah. But okay. it's interesting that it doesn't in any way seem a deprivation until the, the, the serpent suggests that it might be. Mm. So um, Adam and Eve are perfectly fine with uh, just looking at that tree mm. until it's suggested that they might be missing out on something. Um, and um, I mean, I, I think that the seven-year-old is absolutely right that the tree is there um, so that Adam and Eve have a choice. Um, and it is it, it's part of of this the whole Christian theology of what human beings are is that human God genuinely makes human beings um, different from himself, other than himself, with with the freedom to be uh, um, not connected with God if that's what they choose. So um, Augustine Bonhoeffer and others they they look at this as God simply offering a, a real choice to human beings who otherwise would have no choice if, if they just lived in this perfect garden getting on you know having this beautiful relationship with God they would actually as a matter of fact be um, tame animals they'd be pets wouldn't they they wouldn't be human beings um, and so there has to be a real possibility of human beings choosing something that is not God's will if they are to be what we recognize to be human beings. So it's a representation of human freedom, if you like, the fact that we are given a genuine choice to make, which is what that story represents. And I think we can go a bit further and say what the nature of that choice is, because the tree is given a name. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not an oak tree or apple tree or pear tree. Um, and that's about as clear a sign that one can be given. I think that this is a symbol. This is symbolic language. It's, it's a whole way of the whole thing that pops up and says, "Hello, I'm a symbol." Um, and there are, there's been tons of ink spilled over um, what that means. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. My, my view is that it means uh, that it's a, a grab for moral autonomy eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is a way of saying i'm going to decide for myself what's right and what's wrong i'm not going to be told what to do by god or anybody else <clears throat> and that seems to me to be always a possibility that we uh, can decide to use our own resources our own wisdom our own will um, and let that trump everything else uh, on the other hand, the fact that our perspective is rather minuscule, the amount, of, the amount we actually know is pretty pathetic, means that God's perspective might be worth taking into account rather more in that process. Well, I've always, I suppose I've read that, that idea, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the sense that Adam and Eve knew goodness before this. They knew the presence of God. They knew his provision for them. They knew that they were in this garden of delight, which is what Eden means. What they didn't know at that point was, was evil. And uh, so they, they knew good, 
but they did not know evil. They had not experienced it. They had not tasted it. They had not, it had not entered into human experience and, and the world. And what this tree, in a sense, represents is that polarity, that possibility that you might turn away from goodness towards evil and actually taste evil and and, and evil to be, if you like, activated at that at that moment. Always absorbed into you. Yeah, exactly. So it is a sort of you know, it's, it, this is the tree which. It represents not just the knowledge of good, but also the knowledge of the, the possibility that there might be the absence of good. In other words, the, the, the creation might return to the chaos, the void out of which it came. It might be undone, which is kind of what set, is set in train by that action of of eating the the apple. It's there's a representation of the turning away from God to try to undo the creation, to destroy it, as it were. And and of course, what um, Bonhoeffer and others say about about it is that it's actually not at all a difficult thing that God has asked them to do. He's not asking them to deny themselves in any way. It's just a very simple um, offering a choice um, in a garden surrounded by nice things to eat. You don't actually need to eat from this tree. Um, so it's a very simple thing that God asks at the, the human couple to do, um, just to please Him. And but but the the the, the person who wrote the, the child who sent it who sent us this question is absolutely right. It's the minute you you see something that, however easy you you're asked not to do, that's what you want to do. And of course, <laughs> um, sure enough, yeah, sure enough. <laughs> Uh, I was just going to, in, in the good tradition of St. Augustine, offer a retraction. It wasn't um, the serpent who suggested that God had said you shouldn't touch it. It was it was Eve who who added that bit. But but nevertheless, For the sake God of never actually said you shouldn't touch it. Only that don't eat from it, or you will die. There's, he wants to protect them from the consequences of wrong decision. He doesn't want them to have that set in which is destructive of them. Yes, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because he does actually tell them the truth about it. Yes. Um, so it's not that he says, do this only to please me. Yeah, that's um, right. Yes. Yeah, and I suppose the, the um, I mean, it's related to another question, I guess, is that if, if God has created a tree of the knowledge of good and evil at the heart of the garden, does that mean that he has therefore created evil? I don't think so, particularly not on my interpretation of what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. This is a way of making a grab for moral autonomy. Uh, it is not God who has created that situation. He has created a good garden and placed us within it. Uh, it is we who bring evil into existence by opposing him. So has he therefore created the possibility of evil? I think in creating us free, yes. I would say. If you can talk of evil as something created. Well, I think you can't. Exactly. Yeah. Because there's a sense in which evil is the absence of creation. It's the undoing of creation. So what God creates with the tree is the possibility of something that is against God's will. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's, it, it's, it's a negative possibility, isn't it? The possibility of turning away from God. We don't have to love God. We don't have to love the source of our whole being we don't have to love the the rationality for everything that is we don't have to love goodness no no we don't have to but if we want to be in harmony with creation creator and the rest and one another and indeed the deep places of ourselves it makes sense to because that's that is what you see as the result of eating 
the fruit, isn't it? You see the unravelling of the harmony. So first of all, human beings notice they're different, whereas before they'd noticed they were complementary. Then they notice that they're different from God and they hide from him, whereas before they used to work together and talk together. Um, then um, there's an enmity between them and the, the snake and the animals, and then there's an enmity between them and the, the earth, so that whereas uh, working in the garden was fun, before that, now they have to work for their living in a way that's going to be hard. So what you see is and there's that, even the whole kind of thing of language, isn't there? Yeah. That, you know, it culminates in the Tower of Babel and that you know communication language, which was meant to bind us together as human beings, then suddenly becomes a means of disunity and misunderstanding and so on. So the whole thing fragments. Yes. So there's a there's a sociological division, there's a psychological division, there's an ecological division, there's a kind of linguistic division that all comes from the basic theological division that we've set up between ourselves and, and the source of our the exactly. loving source of our being yes. comes of choosing nothingness as opposed to life yeah. it's strange isn't it when you when, when you when you kind of put it like that you know we don't have to love god we don't have to love goodness we don't have to love the source of our being yeah, why on earth would you yes. do this but then that brings into play that you know the the seductiveness and and power of 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 evil that that can can dress itself in as an angel of light it can make it seem ad- attractive and i guess it's you know it's a, it's a, psychologically it's a very sort of powerful recognizable thing isn't it that you know there, there are a lot of things in you know in life that we are we're encouraged to sort of admire and and and, and observe and delight in but not to possess because actually if you try to possess them you know someone else's goods or wife or husband or, or, or whatever else it is you know it's good to admire beauty but actually to possess it and to kind of this this desire to make it your own is not always and there's there's that bit of screw, screw tape isn't there where screw tape says there's a senior devil speaking to a, a junior trainee devil uh, the trick is that the, the fun part is to uh, to give to get everything from them and give them absolutely nothing in return and that's what you see going on they don't get anything good from this act no in fact i mean the the snake tells them it will make them like god but genesis has already told us they are like god they're in the image of god mm-hmm. so they're being offered something that is already, already there yes. <laughs> um and uh, i mean I, I do think it's the most extraordinarily powerful theological story don't you i mean the, the depth of it and the, the psychological truth of it is quite extraordinary do you, do you see it as some um, because i guess one other question that's written that, that arises at the fall is whether it's a whether it's an event or whether it's a sort of representation of what is always going on in human behavior. Are we to see this story as something which can happen at a particular point in, in evolutionary development? Or are we to see it more as a sort of like a, a kind of um, sort of mythical representation of the nature of temptation and sin? I, I, I want to go for the first of those. If you have the evolution of human beings uh, and if part of that is a, a, an evolution of our physical abilities our rational abilities our relational abilities social abilities linguistic abilities but part of that is also a growing moral awareness there must have been a particular point at which human beings are morally developed enough to be held accountable and knowingly do something wrong so logically there must have been a first point at which that happened um, and if you don't in any way see something as happening then you have to say that the world 
as it is now is the way God int intended it to be, created it to be. And there are some huge problems with that in terms of the problem of evil, I think. And I also think it's, it's I, mean, I, I, I think I agree with you. I, I want to go for, I'm mean, certain it's both. It, it both represents, you know, the nature of temptation. Yeah. But it, it also is more than that. It is saying that there was a particular time in human development where this fatal move was made. And I think that the reason why that's crucial is because if, if it's not, in some way historical you have to say the world has always been like this there's always been this evil at play within the world and that also means you can't really have any hope that it will ever be any different and therefore yet yeah, takes away any sort of sense of eschatology any sense of hope that one day it might be different from this and so because you because what the doctrine of the fall tells us there was a time when it wasn't like that when there was you know in the story adam and eve walking in the shade of the evening in the presence of god with that openness and harmony and so on that gives you hope that that might one day be again whereas if there wasn't a time when this thing happened it's always like that then actually it takes it takes hope out of the picture and and it also suggests you know if it is just talking about each person's psychological struggle with evil it suggests that we could choose not to do evil um and that every yes. single one yes. of us has that free choice about whether we will be utterly um, for God or choose against God. And, and actually, we, we know that's really not true, is it? That through all of us now um, runs this, uh, this skewed um, uh, desiring and willing that, that much as we long to, um, many of us long to try to love God with our whole hearts, we don't have that sort of freedom anymore. And the great Pelagian heresy, exactly. um, the great British contribution to systematic theology, um, <coughs> he suggested that... You're welcome, world out there. <laughs> he, he basically suggested that we, we, are, we operate where Adam operated, rather than, as Augustine insisted, no, we operate from where Adam finished. Uh, and that has changed the situation. I don't mean that, to take that in, in, in a literal sense. This is figurative language. This is pictorial language. This is symbolic language. But but something happened. It's symbolic of something happening. How then do we make sense of I mean, of Augustine's idea of original sin for a contemporary world? You know, this idea that somehow we are we are born with this twist in our nature. We are born guilty which is kind of what he would say um you know it's a controversial idea it's one that people have often struggled with this idea that, that sin is somehow inherited from our from our past ever since the sin of adam um we are a cursed race as he would put it a sort of massa peccati a sort of mass of sin i mean it, does can that idea have any sense for us today do you think i think you have to distinguish between the doctrine of original sin and the doctrine of original guilt. There's a difference between us being created, well, not being created, but born with a tendency to sin, which I think is observably the case, and saying that this to our old baby is guilty, which is a different thing altogether, I think. Um, personally, I don't believe in the doctrine of original guilt. Uh, I do believe in the doctrine of original sin, and I have to say not personally the way that Augustine does it. I think that sin builds up its own momentum, that once sin is introduced into the system, into the equation, it builds up a momentum. Uh, 
it creates hurt. Hurt then creates a desire to retaliate. You see that going on in the pages that follow Genesis 3. Um, and the more people get hurt, the more they get sucked into this vortex of, of, of replying in kind. And there's a, it is, now is the point we are in such a broken system. We are parented by people who have been deeply hurt themselves uh, because they were deeply hurt. Uh, and it's very... It is, it is impossible actually not to respond in kind to that situation. So I go for a more kind of cultural mm. uh, uh, way of assimilating um, brokenness and, and sinfulness, really. Because we are still created interconnected. Um, I mean, that beautiful picture that you see of creation in Genesis um, 1, where each stage um, comes out of the stage before, enables the stage after, um, and is interdependent, what Genesis calls uh, the generations of the heavens and the earth, um, of which we are a part. And that is still the reality. Things are that are interconnected. So you can't, as, as, as Mike so vividly says, you can't actually have one person um, doing something uh, or, or being broken and sinful without it impacting on everything all around them. And, um, uh, and so original sin is just simply describing the reality of, of, of the interweaving lives that we just do live. And Pelagianism, which is the, the opposite of the Augustinian idea of original sin, is fundamentally quite individualistic, isn't it? It's effectively saying, I'm I am an individual, I am unaffected by my parents, by my siblings, by my friends, by my society. I am an entirely sort of autonomous individual, able to make my own choices, unaffected by anyone else. And again, that's observably just not true. Very British, though. <laughs> Very British. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, say that for it. <laughs> That's why we don't talk to each other on the tube. <laughs> recently, how, how some of sort of social media actually kind of highlights that sense that, you know, nowadays you can't do anything without it somehow appearing on Facebook or Twitter or whatever else it is. It kind of accentuates that sense of connectedness that we live in a world which is thoroughly connected. Now, that's a particular way of doing it. And there's been other ways in which, you know, small village life, it's, you know, gossip that does it. But but it's all part of that representation that we've, of that idea that we are, whether we like it or not, connected social beings. That's the way God has, has made us. And the Augustinian idea of original sin sort of captures that in a way that the Pelagian individualism doesn't. Yes, I mean, wh whatever one thinks of the mechanism that Augustine suggested for for this, his concept Which, of course, of, was that it was passed on through sexual intercourse yeah, and so on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nevertheless, he's right about the solidarity in it. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 there is uh, an inter, as Jane says, an interconnectedness that it also binds us together. It to be true to our experience of how we think about guilt and responsibility. Because it's, you know, it seems to me that when you, when you hear of a, you know, dreadful case of some, I don't know, teenager who's in, you know, killed a child or something like that and, and, and you know, um, you know, some horrendous tragedies happened. And very often when you look into that teenager's background, it's often very kind of chaotic and, and, um, and, and very, you know, broken in all kinds of ways, which in one sense makes you think, well, I can understand why this person did what they did. But at the same time, we wouldn't excuse them for what they did for that reason. And it seems to me, psycho you know, again, psychologically, we, we have to kind of hold together both the sense that we are individually responsible for our actions, but we are also caught up in a, a network of 
of destructiveness which we can't escape from. Um, so we are individually responsible, but we are also conditioned by our our environment and our, our relationships and uh, and so on. And so you kind of hold those two things together, which is what original sin in some ways does. It says to us, you know, yes, we are individually guilty for the sins that we commit, but at the same time, we do them because we are affected by our connectedness to each other and our you know the, the, the whole history of of sin handed down from one generation to another that we're affected by today. So I think the the, the other problem with Pelagianism is um, is that is that it makes sin very small. It makes sin, you know, just the things that I do. The acts. Yes. yes. You know, so yeah. I am a good person because I have never murdered anybody. Um, but one knows that's just a little tiny bit of of the truth. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I, I may not have murdered anybody, but I damage people. Um, and that every tiny little sin like that is a kind of pull at the fabric of of goodness of reality. and reality. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit like the kind of butterfly effect, isn't it? You know, the, the idea that a the um, butterfly beating its wings in Hawaii can cause a hurricane in Madagascar. Yeah, exactly, or something. Yeah. something like that. In the way that because we're so so connected as as a human race, the, the tiniest act of jealousy or gossip or malice can have all kinds of of effects beyond our, ourselves. They're not just little peccadilloes. They're, they're kind of offences against the, the whole nature of, of goodness and the fabric of the world that God has made. So that's a nice depressing place to leave that, isn't it? Do you think we should then say something about the grace of God? That <laughs> Well, I, I think in a sense it is an optimistic thing. The, the doctrine of the fall says this is not the way things were made to be it's the, and, and as Derek Kinner says because sin wasn't the first word about creation it need not be the last mm. <clears throat> it's not inextricably entwined it is horrendously entwined but not inextricably I love there's a bit in um, G.R. Evans's book on Augustine on evil where she um she has this long involved discussion of Augustine's understanding of sin and the nature of it and, and so on. This is a brilliant paragraph at the end where she says basically, you know, at the end of Augustine's journey, he was very conscious of the, the, you know, the very great complexity of human motivation, the sort of knottiness of sin. He often used that image of a, of a sort of knotted rope that you can't undo. Um, but then she says, you know, at the end of the day, actually, he'd taken, even though he was very aware of the, the, the kind of the complexity and terribleness of sin, actually, he'd taken a very optimistic view of the problem of evil, because actually, in comparison to the goodness of grace, it was actually quite a trivial thing. It was actually just the undoing of goodness. It wasn't a kind of extra power over against God. It wasn't some sort of, you know, big majestic thing that we sort of bow before. It was just a, it's just the undoing of the of the great project of goodness and grace. And so ultimately, Augustine's idea of grace was much bigger than his idea of sin. It's not divine. Yeah. Uh, not as in the great Persian dualisms of Zoroastrian, that's Zoroastrianism and that sort of thing, where the good God and the evil God are fighting it out and they're pretty evenly matched. And where's the hope in that? that Which is what Augustine kind of believed out? during his Manichae period, exactly. isn't it, in the early days. Yes. Yeah. And, and uh, where he came to us to see, no, it's, it's a distortion of goodness, a perversion, an absence, a lack. Yes. It's not a thing in itself with divine power. And that evil is temporary and goodness is permanent. 
And so funnily enough, although you wouldn't guess it to begin with, believing in original sin means that you stop thinking quite so much about sin and think more about God. I mean, sin is what is the mess that we're in. Um, and uh, our only hope is God. So the thing to do is concentrate on God. Um, whereas actually, again, Pelagius and, and that the sort of um, belief in our own absolute moral autonomy means we have to pay such a lot of attention to ourselves the whole time and, you know, constantly check out whether we're, how we're doing, uh, as opposed to paying attention to God, which is much more fun. And, and also, the Pelagian view <coughs> is, is very condemning. You know, you ought to be able to do this. Uh, so if you so why haven't you? So why well, on earth haven't you? Pull yourselves up by your, by your own bootstraps and get on with it. Whereas Augustine's is much more understanding of the, the fact that we are broken, we are hurt, we are the product of and the victims of as well as contributors to this messy situation. So it's kind of understandable. It doesn't mean it's okay. It doesn't justify it. it doesn't, but there's a pastoral understanding and warmth there which we need to show to one another, I think. So, Paul from Canada, could you ask your child to send us a lot more questions, please? That was a really interesting one. <laughs> Obviously a very theologically astute seven-year-old. <laughs> so, um, Probably so, yeah, none the wiser now. But. <laughs> <laughs> she should join the next, the next God pod. But, um, so there you go, your seven-year-old's question can yield an awful lot of um, theological, well, I, I hesitate to say wisdom. But <laughs> <laughs> Verbiage, anyway. <laughs> It gets us into all kinds of fascinating questions. So thank you very much for that question. And um, it's kept us going for the whole God pod. There you go. So uh, anyway, that's um, that was that was God pod. I think that is God pod. And um, it's uh, goodbye from us. We'll be back again before too long. So goodbye from me, Graham. And from me, Michael. And from me, Jane. Bye. That was God pod, a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. <laughs>